there. Welcome to the Real World NP Podcast. I'm Liz Rohr, family nurse practitioner, educator, and founder of Real World NP, an educational company for nurse practitioners in primary care. I'm on a mission to equip and guide new nurse practitioners so that they can feel confident, capable, and take the best care of their patients. If you're looking for clinical pearls and practice tips without the fluff, you're in the right place. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review so you won't miss an episode. Plus, you'll find links to all the episodes with extra goodies over at realworldnp.com slash podcast. so excited to share this episode with you. This is an interview with Scott Pasquale. He is a cardiology nurse practitioner, family nurse practitioner by training. And uh, we talked about um, so many things. All the questions primarily came from the community, uh, real world NP community, but of what we would like to ask a cardiology NP and vice versa, what cardiologists and cardiology NPs would like us to know in primary care. So we talked about we're pre-referral testing, atrial fibrillation, heart failure, um, all the different types of imaging, which is just like so good, so good. So I hope you really enjoy it. Um, One quick note though, is that um, we didn't get into in depth, like different medications, things like guideline directed medical therapy, antihypertensive medications, what to choose when and how to change them, titrate them, etc. So just so you know, there's two resources I have to share. One is that we already did a video on the channel and a podcast episode about heart failure guideline directed medical therapy overview of care of heart failure patients. And then the other thing is we actually have a full on course called the diabetes, hypertension and CKD managing those conditions course. Um, and we talk about all of those aspects of hypertension management, what meds to start, all the pharmacology behind it, how to titrate it, um, frequently asked questions, all of that good stuff. So if you need any support with that, head over to realworldmp.com slash courses. Uh, without further ado though, I'm gonna share my interview with Scott Pasquale and I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for being here. Can you introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, my name is Scott Pasquale. I'm a nurse practitioner. I work in an outpatient cardiology office uh, just outside of Boston. Awesome. General cardiology, so we see a little bit of, of everything. Um, my Pretty much my whole career background has always been in cardiology. I, I worked as a nurse on a telemetry med surge floor and then a cardiac surgery step-down unit. And then my first car- my first nurse practitioner job, I did um, some inpatient cardiology, and now I'm on the patient side of things. That's awesome. And how long have you been an NP for? I have been an NP for about six years now and a nurse for 12. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Very cool. And um, what kind of program did you do? Did you do adult GERO or family nurse practitioner or acute care? Or what, If you don't mind sharing that. I did, I did the FMP route because I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do, and I figured that would give me... Um, me the most options when I finished. Um, just so happened that I, I worked in cardiology while I was in school and I had my foot in the door and really liked those that population and, and everything yeah. we did there. So I just stuck with it. Yeah. That's awesome. And I was going to ask you, like, how did you, how did you kind of choose cardiology? Was it kind of that it, you were in that area and you're like, wow, I really like this? Or did you think more about it beforehand? Like what were your, what was your approach to it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I kind of just, fell into it. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. It was, it was a tight job market when I got out of school. My first job was at a rehab nursing home. Um, but it was when I went to a telemetry med surge floor from there uh, where I really started to like the cardiology stuff. Actually, in school, I was not a big fan of 
cardiologist stuff was very confusing to me. Um, and so it's kind of full circle. I, I yeah. ended up going back to what I found challenging. Totally. And I love that. And thank you so much for sharing, because I know that a number of people, um, which we'll get to, um, wanted to ask about getting into cardiology or if they're already there. So it's really helpful to hear that you did family nurse practitioner and then you ended up here because sometimes I think about specialties and I'm like, what specialty would I do? And it's just encouraging to hear that there are people that are that are doing that. So yeah. um, cool. So first question I usually ask for specialist interviews is like, what is it that you wish that primary care providers knew? There, like something that comes up either all the time or just like in general or any pet peeves you have to share. Uh, this is really your opportunity to have like a primary care provider soapbox. So go for yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, I, I'll, I, I'm going to just sort of preface this with the fact that in, in, the, in my practice, our, I do not see new consults that, that have been referred to us. They've been seen by one of our doctors first, a cardiologist first. Um, and, you know, I'm not a substitute for a cardiologist. I'm not a cardiologist. I'm in addition to part of the team. Um, that being said, common things I, I do hear when, you know, new patients are referred to us is, uh, you know, a lot of times people just get referred to us for, for symptoms and there's been no workup whatsoever or, you know, a, a chest pain referral. And it's like, okay, well, do we have an EKG? Have they ever had a stress test? Like there's some things that primary care can do to get the ball rolling. Yeah. Um, before they before they get to us, especially, you know, as with any specialty, there's limited resources and, it, and it's not always, you're not always able to get people in as soon as you, uh, yeah. you hope for. Um, so just getting the ball rolling on work up and actual treatment too uh, mm -hmm. is important if these patients are going to have to wait for a while. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then in that same vein, uh, knowing who really is like an urgent referral versus something that's a little bit more back burner um you know someone who has a, a markedly abnormal stress test and a, con a convincing history um mm -hmm. yeah we're going to want to see that person right away versus you know a 32 year old with an asymptomatic murmur that they've had all their life not mm -hmm. as urgent so mm -hmm. um definitely sort of indicating on the referral if there's any way your system has that where they can um basically uh, how worried are you about this patient? Do they need to be seen yesterday or um, can this wait? Totally. That's super helpful. And that's definitely some of the questions we're going to get into. I think there's like a huge, um, um, there's, and this applies to like most specialties too, from primary care perspective is like, how much do you want to work up? Um, so maybe let's get into that one first, because I think that there is yeah, there's a lot of questions. And so I feel like the, maybe the place to segue into is talking about um, imaging and testing. Um, and mm -hmm. there are so many areas we could go with this. But I think that specifically, if we can start to break it down, um, and let me know what your thoughts are. But if you want to break it down into like ordering a stress test, um, do you like maybe let's start there? Because I think there's a lot of confusion there about the different types of stress tests, when you would expect to order them, when you would hope to have them done things like that, like anything you want to add or talk about with that? Yeah, definitely. Uh, stress testing is a great one to start off with. Um, just because I, I feel like there is a lot of confusion. Even when I first started working in cardiology, I had a lot of confusion about the different stress tests. Um, so it's helpful if you break it down into, A, what are we stressing the person with? And, and B, what kind of information are we going to get? Um, stress, you know, exercise is, is a, is a the typical one, when you hear stress test, you have someone walking the treadmill and some stress lab, they'll use a bike. Um, the stress lab that we have, we use the treadmill, usually a Bruce protocol. Um, 
Is yeah, that a protocol? Yeah. Okay. And that's just like standard treadmill protocol that I think most stress labs will probably use. Um, mm -hmm. But it's just important to know how we're going to stress this patient. Are they suitable to, to be on a treadmill or not? You know, sometimes mm -hmm. we do get uh, patients who use a walker or yeah. uh, they have an amputation and they don't have a prosthetic. It's like, oh, we're not going to get very far. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's um, so, so just knowing what, what, how you want to stress the patient and, and also looking at their other um, medical issues, you know, certain, certain medications are, are tougher to use different medications to stress. But, but so yeah, typically with stress, we use either exercise. The second most common kind is um, Lexi-Scan or regadenosine, which is a, a vasodilator. Um, and then dibutamine is the other common one that we use. Um, so start with the most basic exercise stress test. You're you're stressing with exercise, you're asking the person to work more, increase their um, cardiac demand, and you're getting a continuous EKG tracing and you're looking for you're looking for a lot of things. But um, most commonly if it's like a chest pain workup or a shortness of breath workup, you're looking for ischemic changes and, mm -hmm. and you'll see that usually with some ST, depression, uh, different places. So that's the most basic is just an exercise with the treadmill. Um, if you want to do in any sort of imaging, you can still do the exercise portion. And then it's most common imaging would be with a nuclear scan or an echocardiogram. Um, we use the nuclear scans a, a lot more. You might hear these called like MIBIs or MyoViews or a lot, mm -hmm. of, a lot of different names, I think just kind of adds to the confusion. But, but basically, yeah. in principle, you're, you're, you're having someone exercise at their peak exercise uh, you're injecting them with a nuclear tracer and that tracer gets brought to the heart muscle wherever the blood is going to bring it and it sort of sticks to the heart muscle and afterwards we get pictures and the tracer glows underneath the camera um, and the pictures kind of look funny when when they glow they look like depending on what view they look like either like little peanuts or donuts but basically you're looking uh you're going to see if there's any areas that aren't glowing quite as bright or as much or at all as other areas uh, if the stress pictures show that everything looks fine and dandy, then that's fantastic. If there's something that looks abnormal, those are resting uh, images as well and compare the two to see if this is something that is just induced with stress or if this is something mm. that is um, there at baseline. And that's how you sort of tell the difference between like ischemia versus infarct. Mm. Um, and so those are, those are the nuclear ones. The echo ones uh, you also can do with exercise. Um, and same idea, you're looking to get the heart rate up, you're, you're seeing their exercise tolerance, and then you're getting echocardiogram images at their peak exercise to see if there's any, usually you're looking for wall motion abnormalities if you're, if you're looking to diagnose ischemia. These can be a little bit more challenging um, because it, it's, it's kind of a tough test. You're having these people go on the treadmill and they're working pretty hard to, for, for us to consider it a diagnostic heart rate to rule out ischemia. You're looking to get to 85% of their age predicted maximum, which is a pretty good workout. Mm -hmm. um, so you're having these people run up the hill on the treadmill, and then to get good echo pictures, they need to be perfectly still holding their breath lying down. So it's like this weird thing That's where like it's like, run, 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 stop. All right, hold your breath. And it's, it can be a pretty uncomfortable test. Um, so mm -hmm. don't use, tend not to use those as often. Um, the other way to do a stress echo is just dibutamine. So it's an infusion of dibutamine, which, you know, increases the heart rate. So you, you can get to a target heart rate that way as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So basically there's 
different ways of stressing, different ways of getting information from that. I love that. And I love those explanations. Those are really helpful, especially from a visual perspective. I feel like you've probably had practice explaining this to patients. Like that was just so easy for you. Um, In terms of that, I have another, I have a follow-up question about the nuclear. So what are some of the names, especially for newer providers? I've, you know, MyoView, what are some of the other names for the nuclear scans? Yeah, so uh, you might hear it called a MIBI or a SESAMIBI or um, nuclear scan, Mm -hmm. uh, nuke, MyoView, all Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. fairly synonymous you're using um nuclear images to yeah. to look at the blood flow of the heart muscle yeah and i guess a, a good way to explain this and we use this with, with patients this is not an analogy i came up with i'm stealing it but um it, it's kind of it looks at how well the lawn is watered so to speak versus cardiac catheterization with an angiogram you're actually looking at the, the major arteries you're looking at you know hoses and sprinklers this mm-hmm. you're looking at the, at the lawn is is there any area that's a brown spot that suggests it's not getting a lot of water um, mm. is one way to sort of look at it. And explain I love that. I love that. I love that explanation. And so, and so just another kind of recap. So basically if we kind of like take a couple of steps back. So like if you have a patient who has um, like, uh, you know, in their fifties, cis male patient has uh, chest pain with activity and they are ambulatory. They can, you know, they can walk fine. They don't use a walker. Um, so for that person, like typically, are you recommending like us or like in your office or would you be ordering like a, a, a kind of regular exercise stress test, treadmill stress test to start? And then you add the yeah. fancier ones later, or how does that kind of work for you in terms of choosing yeah. between them? So if someone, um, if they have no history uh, and you're just looking for an initial evaluation, a, a, an exercise stress test or exercise tolerance test, um, use sort of interchangeably different different names, but um, basically walking on the, having a person walk on a treadmill and getting an EKG tracing, that's, that's typically, uh, you won't really be wrong going that way as part of the initial workup, mm-hmm. um, where you might want to, start with something more involved, like a stress tech or, or nuclear stress test would be if the patient's baseline EKG is abnormal. Because with the ETT, the exercise tolerance test, with just the EKG criteria, that's really all we have to go on is objective evidence of ischemia. So if someone has a, a baseline EKG that's abnormal, it's harder to say, is this change in ischemic change with exercise, or is this sort of like their baseline abnormality that's just getting exaggerated as they exercise? So if someone has a perfectly normal EKG to start, they're suitable to go on a treadmill. Just a plain exercise stress test is is, um, mm. is good enough to, to start with. Um, it's the people who have the ab- baseline abnormalities or if they can't exercise, you're going to need some sort of imaging agent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so... Um... So if they have, so let's, let's play with some examples. So if you have somebody that same profile has an abnormal EKG, you're probably going to do something like um, the nuclear stress test or, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I get so turned around with all the different stress tests myself. Um, is there, is it basically just exercise and nuclear, or is there another category that I'm forgetting about? So, so with, uh, with the stress modalities, you can do it exercise or you can do it with medication. And then medication, oh, the more common one is oh, right. the, the Lexi-Scan or the Dibutamine. I see. Um, they work a little bit a little bit differently. Um, so, Which does not have the nuclear imaging part. It just has mm-hmm. the medication and EKG. Right. So, And oh, you can use exercise with just the EKG. You can use exercise 
with the nuclear and you also uh, get the EKG along with the nuclear mm. or likewise you can do exercise with the echo. Mm. Um, if someone's not exercising, you need to have imaging because you you can't just get like still EKG and, and, and look for changes that way. Mm. Um, you're going to want some sort of imaging evidence with the echo or the, or the nuclear. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's really helpful. Cause I think that that's one of the main concerns of primary care providers. They're like, I don't want to order the wrong test. And so I'm going to just send them to cardiology, but then you get to the situation, like you were saying with cardiology is like, well, what tests have been done yeah. so far? Yeah. So that's really helpful. Yeah. yeah. Cool. And, and yeah, in most, in most patients, if they have no history, that their baseline EKG is normal. You wouldn't be wrong to, to start with an exercise. Yeah. But if they were non-ambulatory with a normal EKG, would you go straight for chemical? Um, yeah. Okay. Yep. In, the, in that case, I'd probably probably would or a, um, a nuclear test. Um, mm -hmm. And typically, what are nuclear is more than the, the echoes, just because oh, yeah. they're a little bit. Um, their their patients tolerate them better. You know, the mm -hmm. we, the medications we use mostly for the nuclear scans is the, is the Lexi scan or Regadenison is the other name for that. It dilates the coronary arteries. It's super short acting inside our system in a minute or so. Um, most people they feel like a little short of breath with it, but it's it's by the time they start to feel poorly, it's it's out of their system or they have no symptoms at all. Mm -hmm. um, so that one we can do re with relative ease uh, and get nuclear pictures. If you want to go the echo right, you'd have to use the butamine, which is. Uh, I think in my experience, not as well tolerated. People have issues with ectopy and blood pressure and makes mm -hmm. them feel really crappy and takes longer. And, and uh, mm -hmm. so uh, typically we see the nuclears more often than the echo. It's sort of in limited circumstances we, we, that I would order a stress echo. Totally. And then just to dig one last time on the, all these tests. So like if you have somebody who's ambulatory, who's non-ambulatory and an abnormal EKG at baseline, straight to nuclear basically is what you're saying yeah yeah that, that would be your only option yeah you'd have to do either a zubutamine echo which like i said is not ideal so a, a, a nuclear test would be better tolerated and people do you know have concerns about radiation exposure and it's obviously mm -hmm. something we're all concerned about with any sort of test that we're ordering um i've been told by our stress lab techs that the amount of radiation that they use for a nuclear stress test is it's very low so if you want to tell people for for frame of reference, it's about as much radiation that you would get if you were to just sit on a cross-country flight, the background radiation from the plane. So it's a very low amount. Mm, that's wonderful. That's really great to hear. Thank you. And I think, yeah, I think in terms of primary care's role, aside from like initial assessment and testing, I think is that preparatory um um, counseling as much as we can do in primary care before they get to a specialist. Cause I feel like that communication piece of like what to expect, um, really goes a long way regardless of where they're going to. So I really, really appreciate all of that. Um, so, um, uh, can we touch a little bit more on uh, just another testing one before we move on to the other topics is about Holter's. <laughs> Yeah. I feel like there's so much struggle with different Holter monitors and arrhythmias and, and stuff like that. So do I, I've, I can ask some pointed questions or you can kind of just give me what you got yeah. thoughts on that. I, I think the biggest thing um, when determining what type of monitor you want to have a patient where, you know, there's, there's all sorts of options. There's Holters, there's patch monitors, event monitors, implantable loop recorders. So you got to know what, why are we doing it first off? Is it, if it for working up of symptoms or, you know, did someone have a stroke or we're looking to screen for AFib or something like that? Um, if it's a 
work up of a symptom, it depends on how often they're having the symptoms. If they're having episodes two, three times a day, then it's a 24, 48 hour hold. There's probably going to be more than enough. If it's something that people have once a week, you might want to do a patch monitor that's, you know, a week or two long to, to ensure you're capturing whatever symptoms you're looking for. Um, or obviously if, if symptoms are even more frequent, you could do 30 day monitoring. Um, but typically if, if it's for something like ruling out uh, AFib as the etiology of a stroke or a TIA or something, you're going to want at least 30 days of data. Mm. Um, the other thing to consider too is, is what are we doing with the information when you get a rhythm monitor? Uh, is this someone that we're concerned about that if they do have something pop up, we're going to want to do something about it right away? Or is this just sort of a routine? Oh, I'm having palpitations here and there. It's been going on for months. Let's see what that's all about. Um, because th there's different turnaround times on the testing too. Uh, mm. You know, a holter can, can come back and get red same day or next day. Um, the the issue more so is is with the different patch monitors that people can wear for like a, a, a week or two. They're very convenient because they're easy. They stick it right on the chest and they and people just throw them in the mail. But the company, depending on where, where it goes and where you're practicing and, and everything in regards to that, it could take a couple weeks to a month to get the results mm -hmm. back. So if you're looking to see if someone has new AFib or if someone might need a pacemaker, um, not the ideal test because by the time they get the results, it's going to be a month later. Mm -hmm. um, so like that, you're going to want more uh, like a 30-day event monitor that can notify the office in real time if they're having any actionable arrhythmias, like a new AFib that you'd want to anticoagulate them for or, mm. or uh, high-grade AV block or something that they need to be considered mm. for a pacemaker. Cool. That's super helpful. So just to recap, so um, the patch monitors, those um, do you get, so if anyone hasn't uh, li listening or watching has not seen those, I've personally had experience with them and it's just like there's this little patch in your chest and a little sticker and it comes in a kit, you put it on and there's some rules about how to prepare your skin and how long to leave it on and how to take care of it. And then you pop it back in the mail, right? And then, the, and then it gets delivered. And then, um, so you're saying, so for the patch monitors, those are only for a week and for, um, you can do 30 days for that. It's just a longer turnaround time. So the patch monitors, are, you can go up to two weeks. Um, okay. So any time frame in there, it's just the turnaround time is, is oh, not a deal. The, the benefits is that they're super easy. You can just yeah. have them on the office, you go home with it, you throw it in the mail. Um, but just the downside is if you're looking for, you know, something potentially that's time sensitive, it's not yeah. the ideal. And so that's the event monitor, which is hooked up at the office. And then they have real time kind of feedback to the office. Right, right. So we can notify the patient if, if they're seeing something that we need to do something about. Oh, that's so cool. And then in terms of like the one day monitors, that would be a patch as well? Or is it really like site dependent? Um, it might be site dependent where, yeah. where we are for, for one day, 24 or 48 hour um, monitoring. We do the holders. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's for, you know, if we're working up symptoms that are happening multiple times a day or on a daily basis, that's usually an adequate amount of time. And the, mm. the turnaround should be pretty quick on those. Oh. Um, another time we do just 24 hours worth of monitor and say if someone has AFib and we want to assess like their overall rate control mm -hmm. um you know every time we see them in the office their heart rate's like 98 but are they anxious or is it just because they yeah. hear their heart rate really kind of borderline so it's helpful to get an overall yeah um 24 hour trend I see. And then the holters are, are those are the ones that you're kind of like hooking them up to all the leads in the office. They go home with that little fanny pack of a monitor and then they bring it back in the next like 24 to 48 hours. 
Yeah, yeah, usually, yeah, we, we set them up in the office. It's usually a few leads. Um, the, the devices may vary. Some of them might be bigger yeah. than others. Some of them are really tiny. Um, and yeah, typically they just drop it off the office the next day or two days later. And does that have real-time information being sent as well, or is it just the event monitor that has the real-time notification? That's a great question. I, I, I want to say it's just the event monitors that yeah. have the real-time. Um, I could be wrong, though. Yeah, I was going to say probably the most common one that you've seen in the office, at least, is getting that information sent in because it's a longer period of time. Um, but that's super, super helpful. I can't tell you because the main like I as much as I, so I've never worked in a cardiology office and especially like me in primary care and I'm trying to work up a patient. I'm doing my due diligence. It's like, you know, you want to monitor their rhythm and it's like, OK, but what are all the options? And then you also have like your referrals department. It's like you put the order in wrong. And I'm like, well, why do I put it in? This is what I want. So yeah, it can get very, really it can be very, very confusing very quickly. Yeah, totally. I love that. Um, so I want to maybe we'll t come back to echo a little bit, but I want to come to the other topics. So, um, okay, this is the this is the question of the ages. So people, new grads, experienced people, ask about EKG learning resources. So, mm -hmm. do you have any thoughts about EKGs in general? Do you feel like you have any pearls of practice to offer or resources to offer or like what are your thoughts about ekgs i think everyone hates them and yeah <laughs> they're care um, and they want to do them better and they always ask yeah. me for courses and i'm like okay this is really complicated but what are your thoughts what are yeah. your thoughts uh it's just practice it's and and even no matter how long you're doing it you're going to have ones that are challenging um i frequently will go to the doctors i work with and be like uh what what's going on here totally. um but I, but i think to start is just to make sure you have a systematic approach. That way yeah. you're less likely to miss everything. If you have this sort of mental checklist or if you actually write it down, a physical checklist, of things to look at, um, you know, most important, identify the rhythm, look at the rate, and then just go further on down from there, you know? Yeah. Worry about getting the rhythm and, and the rate and stuff before you worry about, you know, particular blocks and a left mm -hmm. axis deviation yeah all those things like that so so typically there's there's like the seven plus two thing is what i i was taught uh with ekgs you're going to look at the identify the rhythm identify the rate what's the conduction look like is you know the intervals normal are they prolonged what's the axis and then you're looking at the the morphologies of the different waves so the p wave morphology the qrs and the sd and then you're going to compare it to the previous one if there's anything to compare it to and then the last piece is what's the conclusion? I love that. I love that. And I guess I just from my own perspective as an experienced NP and like having spent a lot of time trying to learn EKGs, I, and please, please let me know if you agree with this. But like, I think that there is, like you said, there's a process, there are some red flags to watch out for. Um, and also, at least in the resources that I've learned from, it's kind of like, well, you can have 20 cardiologists look at an EKG and have different answers on one day. And then you can ask them about the same EKG, the same group of people, and they will probably still have different answers the next day. So yep. okay. thank you yep. for validating that. I just want to like share that with the people because it's, it is really complicated. And I think that there are definitely resources out there. Um, do you feel like, is there, is there a course or a book or is it just experiential practice? Like, what do you feel like has and anything you can kind of shout out there for people to take a look at? Uh, you know, obviously definitely a course is, yeah. is going to be like a, a, a really good focus, um, sort of all the content all at once. Yeah. Um, just the more you do it, the more you get yeah. comfortable with doing it. Totally. Um, ECGpedia is a website that has tons of information. It's a uh, it's a wiki, so it's you know anyone can submit 
content to it, but cool. that can be super helpful. Cool. Um, the, the other thing with the EKGs that I just want to mention is don't always trust what the computer says is going on ask you in the rhythm. Yeah. yeah, because we see that all the time, you know, and, and part of that too is like uh, common sense. Is, is what the computer telling you there? Does it actually make sense with, with what's going mm. on with the patient? Um, the most frequent ones where the computer reads it wrong, it would be like if there's a two to one atrial flutter and it's reading it as a sinus tack because the atrial the flutter waves, um, you know, that mm. first one sort of runs in with the T and the, the next one looks like a normal P wave. Um, so if someone has, gets read as sinus tack in mm. 133 beats per minute, um, but they're not febrile, they're not sick, mm. they're not in pain, they're not anxious, they're not bleeding. Why do they have sinus tack at 133? What's the more likely explanation? Mm. Um, so just taking everything into, you know, the clinical context is important too, and that'll help you sort of determine what's going on with the rhythms. Um, and also too, like just common sense, you know, sometimes you'll see stuff that gets read as like an accelerated junctional rhythm. Mm -hmm. um, but like what, what's more what's more common someone with an accelerated junctional rhythm or AFib. Like AFib yeah. can be way more common. That was <laughs> one that I've seen as uh, you know, someone who was saying, oh, they're in accelerated junctional rhythm. I'm like, oh, mm. it could be, but what's more likely, you know? Mm. Um, so just using your other, the context of the whole situation can be helpful. Totally. Yeah, and I actually have a quick question that came up a bunch in the uh, in the questions from the community about um, AFib. In terms of somebody, for example, if you have a patient who is a new onset AFib, you do the Chad's VASC score, Chad's two, you know, the, all the numbers and letters one, um, and you there and you start anticoagulation. Maybe they're um, rate controlled. You start something like metoprolol, beta blocker, something like that. Um, I personally feel like as a primary care provider, I'm like, I think they're covered, but I still want them to see cardiology. What are your mm -hmm. thoughts about that? Are there is Do you feel like, is there any other things that a person would do in a case like that? Or what are your thoughts about somebody with an a, like a new AFib that's hemodynamically stable and you've kind of gotten, already gotten those pieces going for them? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think definitely, really, if, if anyone has, a, has any sort of cardiac condition, it's it's reasonable to have them see a cardiologist cool. um but yeah i think what you touched on was was the most important thing is so like this is after you you get yeah. the, the first things done you know if yeah. you're an anticoagulation candidate with a higher stroke risk don't wait for cardiology to start yeah. on anticoagulation that's something that's well within the scope of practice in primary care yeah. um so yeah that that's something where you know you have someone and and they're hemodynamic stable you get the rate controlled you get them anticoagulated that could be like a routine referral to cardiology. And we could talk about, you know, rate control, rhythm control. Do we want to go in arrhythmics? Does this person mm. want to um, explore ablation? That sort of thing. So mm. um, just getting them mm. the basics in, in mm -hmm. terms of you know, getting them anticoagulated and rate controlled would mm. be step one. Yeah. Um, and that might be all we do with them them too. Yeah. But, uh, but, but you have more of the... You don't have to wait to, to do, yeah. Yeah, you, but you don't have to wait. And then also, there are like, I think I always forget that because so often my patients just end up on that same regimen. But there are other options. Like you said, like there's ablation, there's rhythm control, there's like all these other things. So, um, mm -hmm. so that's super helpful. Um, so that kind of brings us into anticoagulation uh, very nicely. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so let's talk about anticoagulation. So I want, I'll give you a little scenario that I typically see in primary care. And I know a lot of other people do too. Um, but it's basically like, um, I have a new patient that comes from a hospital follow-up and they had a PE. Um, it's the first time they had that. 
they were started on um like uh, uh there's some sort of anticoagulant whether it's like a low molecular mo low molecular weight heparin um transitioning to another agent in my clinic i see a lot of warfarin just because of the i don't know cost and population stuff like that but um but yeah i think that i remember when i was new i was like okay how long are we going to anticoagulate this person who's not like afib aside like afib is its own thing but if we're talking about like things like pe's and dvt's and stuff like that um yeah. Do you, I mean, do you have any comments about that? I mean, do you have any thoughts about resources or do you see that a lot in, in cardiology or what do you, yeah. Tell me what you're thinking. I mean, we do obviously see people with PEs. Um, you know, I think in general, the guidelines are like six months of anticoagulation after a PE or, or DVT. Yeah. That being said, we don't, um, we don't do a whole lot of anticoagulation management for yeah. PE or DVT. We mm -hmm. are mostly just with, um, manage it with AFib or like an LV thrombus or something like that. Um, so I actually usually defer to the PCP for the most part with... Uh, to the what? PCP. Sorry, I missed that. I actually, I actually defer to the PCP on how long oh, to, to go on DVT and PEs because it's, uh, it's like a weird... It's not really your wheelhouse. Yeah. Like even as yeah. I ask the question, I'm like, wait, that's not really cardiology. It kind of is, but it's kind yeah. of not... Like, I think yeah, it also no, depends on your setting, too, because I think that there are anticoagulation clinics specifically yeah. that deal with a lot of different things. So um, maybe that's the one that I'm thinking of. But um, but yeah, it's a little tough. I mean, I think that, um, yeah, there's definitely some guidelines and we can link to a bunch of resources down below. Mm -hmm. um, cool. Thank you for that. Um, so and I want to jump. Go ahead. I just want to say anticoagulation clinics are incredible to have that resource of people who are on warfarin yeah. um it's so it's so helpful to, to have yeah. those people available so um definitely definitely use all the resources you have yeah yeah i think that one of the challenges unfortunately um is that um i mean well just is, this is a challenging situation. I think fortunately we have a, in our community, we have people who are in rural, rural medicine. Sorry, I'm having a hard time talking today, um, but rural medicine. And so they have limited access to resources or they underserve population. So I think that's where uh, a lot of the questions and the challenges come in. But, um, you know, I, I think I'm, and actually, I'd love to hear your opinion about this, but I am one for cold calling where I'm like, hey, I'm a primary care provider. Uh, I have a question about this patient. Are they appropriate for you? Blah, 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 blah. Um, do you have any thoughts about, do you ever take cold calls or are those like usually the um, physicians or how does that work for you? Is that something yeah, you have no, for as a specialist? <laughs> yeah, no, you? <laughs> no, I, I, I uh, anytime there's like increased communication between the team, I'm all for it. Um, I, I would rather have, work with people in primary care who are proactive and, and want to do things and, and are helpful with, with patients in terms of uh, facilitating stuff that needs to get done for them. Um, yeah, we get, you know, messages or phone calls uh, a lot about questions what to do. And that's, that's what we're here for. You know, we ask, yeah. I do the same thing with the PCTs for the non-cardiac. Yeah, so, uh, that's awesome. Everyone's there to help each other for the patient, you know? Absolutely. And I think it's so important for people to hear that because I think that especially newer nurse practitioners, I don't know if you experience this yourself, but it's kind of like this, there's so much imposter syndrome and there's so much um, um, not wanting to bother people. Like, I think it's like, cause you ask a thousand million questions a day, but, um, but yeah, it is really important. It's interdisciplinary collaboration and, you know, cross specialty. So I love that. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, so we have a couple other questions. So um, uh, coronary calcium, scoring scanning all that stuff do you have any thoughts you want to get into with that any any 
people are kind of yeah. like general gist. Well, you you start, and I can say it can follow. Yeah, I, I I'll preface this with, with it's not typically something I order in our practice because we're seeing patients with well-established heart disease. So mm-hmm. it's, oh, that's true. We're not really, you know, so we're not yeah. really. It, it is used. I would say it is used in primary care more than I use it in in my practice. Yeah. Um, that being said, you know, I know it, it can be helpful in those sort of like borderline cases when you're deciding you know, how aggressive do we need to be with risk factor modification. Let's say you have like a 60-year-old um, with a high cholesterol, but it's really not terrible, mm-hmm. you know, treated hypertension. Do we need to really get you on a statin or a stronger statin or can we, you know, is this good enough? And that's where that calcium scoring can come in if they have no calcium. Um, then you feel pretty good about being a little bit more relaxed. But if they have calcium, then we may it may change your management to opt for mm-hmm. you know a stronger statin or be more aggressive with other things. Totally, totally. That's, that's right. right. Example. Yeah, it, it really only if it's going to change your management. And with any, if, if it's if it's not going to change anything you're doing, probably don't. It's not that important. But if it's going to change what you're doing, that's where the testing can be helpful. Totally, I love that. I love that. Um, so I think one thing that comes up a bit in primary care is, um, you and I chat a little bit before the call about hypertension management, and there are beautiful guidelines that are super helpful. But like, I think that the one of the challenges of real life application is when you have, you know, you have the algorithm of choices, you have all the evidence of like, which one to choose when and what conditions, but then you have patients who have multiple um, medication um, side effects or like, so like the gingival hyperplasia with some of the calcium channel blockers or something like that, you know, like, do, do you deal, how do you deal with that in um, your practice? Like when it comes to like, okay, well, they're having this side effect with ACE inhibitors, this side effect with thiazides, like what are, yeah. How do you kind of approach that with your patients? Yeah. Uh, it, that can be really challenging. You have people with um, who either don't tolerate things because of side effects or, you know, full-blown, like, actual allergies, like, uh, you know, angioedema reactions with ACE inhibitors and stuff. Um, it can be, first off, is I always believe the patient, if they're having side effects or whatever, like, uh, validate what they're experiencing. Um, and then tease it out. Is, is this something that happened before you started the medication? Is it after? And, and do some more exploration. You think if this is actually something that's related to the medication or not. Um because a lot of times it's it's not, and we you just you find something else to to, to fix, and, and you can actually keep people on their medications if they're not actually causing the problems. Um, but yeah, then if if things are actually causing problems, you can I just talk with patients. You know, here's what we have in our toolbox to use. Here's what you know this class of medication would be helpful for. This one would be helpful for. And I kind of do like a shared decision. You know, we've we've done X, Y, and Z what do you think about doing this at this dose and we'll just keep a close eye on it or, you know, um, so getting input from them too. And I feel like if the patient feels like they're empowered as part of the decision-making process, they're more likely to um, be okay with whether it goes well or not, they're most likely to be okay with what you you recommend rather than just telling them point blank, you need to be on this or, you know. Um, And then too, the other thing with, with blood pressure is so many of them, you can kind of do two birds with one stone. So if, if there's more than one thing that you can sort of cover, they're diabetic, you can get them on an ACE or, or an ARB, or if they have, mm-hmm. a, you know, uh, frequent PVCs or PACs or palpitations, you, you know, maybe a beta block, you can get two for one that way. So mm-hmm. um, thinking about everything else that's going on too can help pick what, you know, put your order priority of what class of medication you're going to want to use. 
Totally. Totally. Oh, I love that so much. So cool. Um, so, uh, uh, I think, yeah, I think, um, probably our next, uh, kind of towards the wrap up question is, um, we had a lot of nurse practitioners who either were students interested in going into cardiology, primary care who went into cardiology and they're like, wow, I'm overwhelmed or people who are currently in cardiology and they would love to know. Um, but do you have resources or recommendations, especially for nurse people, new nurse practitioners who did not do like the traditional kind of cardiac step down ICU in the hospital setting, like that type of thing, like getting into cardiology, first of all, and then the second of all is like, what are the resources that you recommend for cardiology specifically? Uh, there's tons. So uh, if, if you want to get into it and you have no cardiology experience, you know, I would, you can just reach out, you know, like you said, cold call people or ask and say, hey, this is my name. This is where I work. I'm interested in this. Would it be okay if I came and chatted you for a half a day mm -hmm. or a day? And so just reaching out, I mean, the worst they can say is no or just not respond. So, um, you know, shadowing can be a great tool, both for seeing if you, if it's something that you would be interested, in, but also if it is getting your foot in the door and having a name to a face and, and stuff. Um, the other thing that can be really helpful in terms of education and networking is conferences. Mm. Uh, there's a ton of cardiology specific conferences. You know, the mm. ACC does a big one every year. There's one at Harvard Medical School and MGH puts on a big cardiology conference with a few days every fall in Boston. So going to a, a conference uh, is uh, another good way to get involved. I love that. So any other kind of like parting pearls of wisdom you want to share or anything we didn't get to yet that you want to talk about? Yeah. I, um, I guess one, one big thing I just wanted to mention too is, is with the, our heart failure patients, particularly the. Oh my the God. Patients. We didn't even talk about heart failure. Let's talk about, hold on. Before we wrap up, let's talk about heart failure. I can't believe we yeah. didn't talk about that yet. Go ahead. Go ahead. Tell me about heart yeah, failure. So, um, so particularly the reduced ejection fraction heart failure patients. Um, you know, with, the, with all the medications we use, the guideline-directed medical therapy, uh, you know, we can, as in the cardiology office, you know, only have the bandwidth to see people oh so often. Um, and anytime they're seeing any other provider or primary care or another specialty or if they happen to be hospitalized for another reason um, is an opportunity to sort of always fine-tune these patients. Uh, the very, very few people with reduced ejection fraction are actually on target doses of their guideline directed medical therapy. Mm -hmm. So that would be like, you know, your uh, beta blocker, your ACE or Arbor and Tresto and MRA and SGLT2 inhibitor. So really any chance that you can get involved to sort of get these people on, on more of their medications and just sort of provide more education where like, you know, because it, it can be a hard sell. Someone's feeling fine. Okay. I want to add this medication or I want to double the dose of this. Mm -hmm. Like why I'm feeling fine. Just explaining, you know, all these things help with uh, target different things in heart failure that, that help mm -hmm. improve quality of life and, and, and outcomes. Um, so, you know, if you see someone in primary care with an EF of 35 and their blood pressure is 142 over 90 and they're on 10 of lisinopril, like, don't be afraid. Like, that's plenty of room. Get them on 20. This is totally. great. Like, this is, you know, um, so don't be afraid to get involved in, in, in where, where, where there's clearly room to push medications, you know, their, their blood pressure and renal function allowed. Don't be afraid to get involved because I think it, every, you need every opportunity you can to sort of fine tune these really complicated patients. 
Totally. And I guess I was going to add too. So um, I had this all the time in primary care, especially my first job. Um, we had so many patients with heart failure. Um, and I was just like, I was pretty overwhelmed with all of the medic medicines and, and the, I think the diuretic titration. Um, so I, I have a question, but I just, just to kind of recap for people who are not familiar, um, GDMT is that, like you said, guideline directed medical therapy. And it's basically like an algorithm of a package of medicines that people who have heart failure with reduced ejection fraction are recommended to take because like you said improves outcomes morbidity mortality quality of life and so that all those categories of medicines um they have their own guidelines I actually have an episode i can link to down below um for heart failure um management in primary care but yeah i think that i think that one of the struggles i think in primary care is um getting comfortable with that that whole algorithm of like, what are the meds, which is something that is so learnable. It's like, you just, you just practice that and you're like, oh, okay, I can rattle off all the medication categories. But then the next piece I think is the diuretic management. <laughs> so many yeah. people with heart failure, um, primarily, well, I think both reduced and preserved ejection fraction need diuresis. Um, mm -hmm. My take is that it is an art more than a science. Um, but what, what pieces of wisdom do you have uh, about diuresis in general and especially the collaboration between your office and primary care because like you said they only see you every so often every three months six months one year things like that yeah definitely um so just getting comfortable with the you know the, the frequent ones we use um and the, the typical doses of them and and um assessing a patient if you think that they're you know volume up their weight's up a few pounds they got some swelling they got some crackles you know don't be afraid to increase the diuretic. You know, first order of business should always be get them out of heart failure. Um, mm. So it may be a few days so we can see them. So, you know, yeah. get them get them out of heart failure as, as mm -hmm. soon as possible. That's always goal number one. Um, and with the, uh, we typically use loop diuretics. And if they're already on one, typically to get a decent response, the general rule of thumb is you have to double the dose. Um, and we use, I, I switch people over to torsamide a lot as they get on like escalating doses of Lasix, especially if they still have like a lot of edema, torsamide tends to be a little bit more effective, um, in terms of absorption. And, I think it's longer duration of action too, isn't it? Torsamide? Yeah. yeah Maybe. I, I, I think it's a little bit better absorbed too. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you're struggling with Lasix, you know, switching people over to tors torsamide yeah. is, uh, is something I do frequently. Totally. I think maybe one barrier to, to keep in mind um, is that it might be a little bit more expensive, the torsamide. I think furosemide tends to be more cheap. I think that's why people say yeah. that one. But yep. um, yeah, and um, tell me if you hate this. But um, so uh, you actually work with one of my mentors, one of my former mentors. And um, so I used to call her at that office and I would ask like, hey, can I do this? <laughs> And usually it would be a complicated case, though. It would be like, okay, well, they're still a demodist. They have all these signs, but their blood pressure is a little bit on the lower side and all of these factors. So do you ever have primary care calling you about that? Is that, is that an yeah. okay, acceptable thing to call? Yeah, I, I would rather they did than just like sweep it under the rug and be like, I don't know, call your cardiologist. I'd rather them reach out to us, totally. figure out a, a game plan. Totally. Um, like I said, more communication so these people don't get, fall through the cracks, and these, especially these complicated heart failure patients, they're high risk, they're frequently totally. hospitalized. So really, anything you can do to yeah. use all your resources um, totally. that you have. Yeah, so, yeah, I just, yeah, and I, I guess I just want to add that because, like, 
Um, so often we learn about stuff in like this textbook realm of like, here's what heart failure is here, guideline directed medical therapy. And then you have the real world where you have somebody who has diabetes, pulmonary hypertension, they have, um, um, chronic kidney disease. And you're just like, okay, I think I need some help here. I just want to make sure I'm keeping all these pieces together. I'm not going to harm them, you know? So yeah. So use, use the resources that you have. Um, I know I do it with the doctors and other uh, NPs and PAs that I work with too. I'll often bounce things off of them because it's patients can be pretty complicated and yeah. it's always, it can be nice to have a, another point of view or, or someone to just say, yeah, no, actually I agree with what I think you're doing is pretty good. So totally. Um, yeah. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Awesome. Well, any other things that we haven't covered or anything else you want to share? Um. No, I don't, nothing, nothing urgent, I don't think, yeah. Cool, cool. Well, I think one thing I, I wanted to share from our conversation before we even got to this interview was you were talking about how how much time you have in specialty mm. practice compared to primary care. So I think that's also maybe something to share to keep in mind that you get like an hour for patients or yeah, yeah. 30 minutes. Really so. lucky. So for our, our you know regular patients in, in with office follow-up, we get a half hour. And for our post-hospital follow-ups for um, heart failure patients or MI patients, we have an hour. Um, mm. And that's like huge. It's, it's such a benefit for, for us with our workflow, but more so for the patient because we have all that time to sort of decompress, you know, after someone has their, their first issue with an MI or, or a new diagnosis of heart failure. First off, it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, but often it's a, it's a pretty busy admission with a lot of testing and a lot of people in and out. And there's just not a lot being absorbed. So to have that extended visit to sort of debrief, go over what, A, what has happened, B, where things are now, and see here's our plan to have you feeling better or get better or, or um, whatever the case may be. So, um, yeah, having that time is, is huge. And another reason where, you know, if someone has a, a documented heart problem, have them. Yeah. See yeah. 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 So much education and coordination, and I love that. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. That's our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review, and tell all your NP friends so together we can help as many nurse practitioners as possible give the best care to their patients. If you haven't gotten your copy of the ultimate resource guide for the new NP, head over to realworldnp.com slash guide. You'll get these episodes sent straight to your inbox every week with notes from me, patient stories, and extra bonuses I really just don't share anywhere else. Thank you so much again for listening. Take care and talk soon.